this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Hello, welcome to Foreign Invader. I am Conrado Falco III, and this is the podcast about the pop culture that is corrupting American life. Today, we are talking about a topic that is so un-American that it was once described as too Celtic by an editor who refused to publish it. We're talking, of course, about the work of one John Ronald Rule Tolkien. And in order to do so, I have with me filmmaker extraordinaire, Lord of the Rings fan, and one of my dearest friends, Mr. A.B. Seidel. A.B., how you doing? I'm doing great, Conrado. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, inaugural episode of what I think will be a great show. Thank you so much for being here. But before we get into Tolkien, um, let's learn a little bit about you. A.B., you are what people would call a real New Yorker. <laughs> Am I right to assume that if, say, the Green Goblin was messing with good old Spider-Man, not letting him do his job, you would be one of those people who grabs a can of soda and says, hey, Goblin, if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, and throws it at him? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I hope I have, you know, that sort of courage. Um, but yeah, I, I'm born and raised uh, in Queens, in fact, in Forest Hills, which is where Spider-Man, where Peter Parker grew up. And, you know, uh, real New York, I don't know what that really means anymore. And I hate to, like, lay sort of tribal claim to the city, um, though I certainly feel that way about Queens in some mm -hmm. way. And of course, the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's the kind of thing we love on this show is that kind of nationalism. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Queens and what do you love so much about it? That's such a great question. I mean, Queens is my home and, you know, it's the most diverse county in the country. Um, and one of the things I love about that was it was just such a wonderful place to grow up because I was always exposed to what felt to me at the time, like the entire world, um, you know, in a five mile radius, I could just have food from any cuisine, interact with people from every culture. Um, my world just always felt large. Uh, it's the sort of exact opposite of the small town experience as I understood it. So my first experience of Queens was through the show called The King of Queens. Have you ever <laughs> seen it? I have seen it, yeah. Did you like it? I thought it was okay. It wasn't my favorite. I gotta say my friend David, if he's listening to this, he was a huge King of Queens fan. He's the only person I've ever met in my entire life who could call themselves a King of Queens fan. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that I'd call myself a fan of the show. I never thought of it as like a sort of premiere sitcom. Um, and maybe that's because in some ways, I think part of what makes Queens, you know, nationalism such a valuable thing for me, uh, and this is related to my Mets fandom, is I think there's as much as Queens is this bustling, diverse borough, it's also, there's sort of an underdog mentality. I think, you know, at least for me growing up in Queens, I knew that like, I wasn't as of course, wealthy or cultured as people in Manhattan. I wasn't as cool or hip as people in Brooklyn. Um, I wasn't as like really down to earth as people in the Bronx. You have, you form these like cultural stereotypes, you know, related to the geographic areas of the city. And I think as a Queens native, I was like, look, I'm great and Queens is great, but if I don't believe that, nobody will because nobody outside Queens is going to give a shit Interesting. about Interesting. What do you think is the most American thing about your childhood? What a great question. It's interesting because 
I think I primarily engage with the idea of America in a sort of mythic sense, in this sort of like narrative American dream of it all. And when I think about my childhood, uh, well, I don't necessarily think of it as like particularly American um, in the sense that, you know, my parents split up when I was pretty young and I like, so I didn't have the sort of core nuclear family that people expect, you know, to have in America. Um, my mom was a teacher in a public school. Uh, so, you know, was always a member of a union, um, which, so in a way there was sort of a real America that existed in my life. Uh, and I think actually the most American thing about my childhood was that it like didn't embody the American dream in any way. <laughs> <laughs> right. What about you? <laughs> That's a good question. I think there was a lot of American things about my childhood. Yeah. And that's kind of why I want to ask that question to everyone who comes on the show is just to see how much of those things repeat in my own. Yes. The most American thing about my childhood probably was t television. Mm. I grew up as a Peruvian person in real life and as an American through identifying with all the, the characters I was watching on TV. That's such a great Point. And in that way, I think something I take for granted as a New Yorker, as an American, is like the cultural hegemony of American pop culture was something I never questioned at all as a kid. I was just like, oh, yeah, like the entirety of pop culture exists here and belongs to us. And there is no world outside of it. Well, that's what this show is meant to uh, investigate, right? Because we're, I'm every mm -hmm. episode will be about something, a cultural object that is mm -hmm. not originated in America. And despite of that, it's very popular. The thing about New York, you do feel like you're the center of the world and it, and it takes over pretty quickly. Um, the distinction between being in Lima in Peru and, and thinking I'm at the periphery of what happens worldwide. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years in New York and I'm like, if it didn't happen in New York, it didn't happen anywhere. You know what I mean? Oh, no, that's, and again, it's something that I think being born and raised in New York, it's very easy to take for granted. Um, I mean, even in the sense of like, uh, culturally, it's a really large thing. Like every musical act stops in New York. Every show is here, every movie is here. I had access to everything growing up. Um, I mean, even as a kid, like going to the Met, which, you know, as an adult, the Met has become a, a really special place for me and as well as a very, you know, complicated one. Um, but as a child, I would go to the Met and the Natural History Museum and view like the entire history of the world's civilization and like, this incredible trove of the world's treasures and like never considered that this wasn't something that existed in every American city or in every city across the world. Yeah, yeah. That is um, what people call privilege nowadays. Yes, indeed, absolutely. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, one thing that I do think is sort of uniquely New York, if not American about my upbringing in regards to the Met is my mom was very adamant that we pay as little as humanly possible to the museum. Of course, she would always say, you know, they have these giant galas um, and they raise all this money. It, you know, the Met is a rich people's project and it's our job to not <laughs> get, not to get scammed and pay the full fee. So, you know, into my adulthood, I've like carried this trauma of if I spend even more than like a dime to get into the Met, I'm just like, oh God, I've been totally had by this institution. <laughs> <laughs> great and you know my mom I remember when I used to go I'd be like mom I went to the Met she'd say oh how much did you spend to get in that was always the question didn't matter what I went to see it doesn't matter what the exhibit she's like how much did you spend I was like I don't know like a buck she's like are you crazy <laughs>
Gotta love that. Yeah. So, Abby, before we continue, where can uh, people find you if they want to see more of your work on the internet? Um, thank you. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at A-B-S-I-D-E-L-L. So that's like A-B Seidel, my last name, um, where I make a lot of dumb jokes that, you know, my three friends like. And uh, <laughs> you can also follow me on Letterboxd with the same um, username, uh, A-B Seidel. Um, and if you want to see some of my work, you could check out my production company's website, which is radicalrhinoceros.com. Um, we've got some fun stuff coming. We've been working on this, uh, medium length horror film for over a year now. Uh, it's called Cram. Conrado's in it. He's wonderful. Uh, I can't wait to finish it in the next few months. Um, but more to come on that soon. Great. That sounds fantastic. All of those things I can vouch are very good. Um, AB's tweets are good, his letterbox is good, his movies are good. So if you enjoy hearing his voice and his thoughts, please go check all that stuff out. All right, we'll be right back in a second to talk about The Lord of the Rings and Mr. Tolkien. My eyes are getting weary, my back is getting tight. I'm sitting here in traffic on the Queensboro Bridge tonight. But I don't care because all I want to do Catch my check and drive right home to you. Cause baby, all my life I will be driving home to you. And we are back. Um, AB, let's talk about Tolkien. Let's just start at the beginning. How do you first get into it? So I first got into Tolkien when I was a kid because my dad encouraged me to read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which were, you know, some of his favorite books growing up um, and one of the pieces of culture that he handed down to me. Um, I think I was in like first grade when I read The Hobbit uh, and I still remember the edition I had was very beautiful. It was a paperback, but it had like a sort of folding jacket still um, and a really beautiful illustration of Smaug on the cover. And I just remember taking that book with me everywhere and being so transported by it. And I remembered when I finished it that I really wanted to read Lord of the Rings, but it just felt too ambitious at the time. It was so, mm -hmm. the, the writing was very different and I just didn't feel ready when I was in first grade. So this is all before the movies came out. Yes. So, oh, so that is, okay, I'm very excited about this. This is very fascinating to me. A person who is roughly my age, who got into it, but knew about it before the movies came out. Because the first time that I heard about it was when I saw the trailer. And I was like, what is this? Oh, fascinating. Oh, that's awesome. I was definitely, I, I probably had a bit of a snobbery about me then. Uh, because I felt that when the movies were coming out, I was like, great, the movies for the thing I just got into are <laughs> now here. Right. That must have been crazy. As a kid. I mean, that's that's probably the way I felt when I saw the first X-Men movie. Exactly. Um, I read Lord of the Rings in third grade, uh, I recall. Um, I remember though, I did get a, my first edition that I had was a, a movie tie-in edition. And it was all three of the books like in one. Wow. Which I think by the way, made the experience of reading it feel just like more monumental to me having this like giant tome of a book. Of course. <laughs> and it was also like a flimsy little paperback. So I read it so much that by the, you know, after a couple of years, it was falling apart completely and I still kept it under my bed. Mm -hmm. But I read it, you know, just before the first movie came out and I loved it. I read it every year for a number of years. So how long did it take you to read it the first time? Were you a fast reader as a kid? I was a very fast reader as a kid. My mom liked to joke that I read too much. Um, 
which I mean, I only wish that I still had that problem. Um, and I have a twin sister and she always wanted to play outside and I always wanted to just stay in and read. And I think because I had something of a tumultuous childhood at home, uh, books always just represented something of an escape for me. Um, and the Lord of the Rings, especially I found so transporting and beautiful. And it sounds like kind of silly to say that in some sense, those books helped to raise me, but I think they did. Hmm. Great. That's what I wanted to get into next. Kind of the question of what appealed to us as kids about these books, because I definitely started reading them after watching the first movie. And I was looking back thinking like, what did I like about this? You know, like I rewatched the movies recently around Christmas time. Um, and then I was reading the, the couple of chapters of Lord of the Rings to prepare for this. And then I was thinking that it's so metaphorical. Like this time around, I was reading as an adult and I was like, oh, this is obviously an allegory and a metaphor. And it's about this and it's about that. I don't think I got any of that as a kid. Mm. I remember reading like an interview with Peter Jackson talking about like how the movies <laughs> were about friendship. And I was like, what are you talking about friendship? These movies are about orcs and hobbits fighting in a battle. Like what? You know, so I don't know if I was a dumb kid, and maybe I was, but also like I totally. didn't pick up any of that. So it was, was just a spectacle. Like, Well, that's an interesting thing, though, because if it was just spectacle, what do you think encouraged you after you saw the first movie to go read the books? This is a great question, right? Like, I guess it's one of those things that when you're a kid, you just get obsessed with it, with something. And, it, and at that time, mm -hmm. that just felt, it felt massive. And I think the movies, uh, which I like quite a bit, um, do a great job of feeling gigantic of, you know, going to New Zealand and, and really making you feel like there's a whole world out there. This is huge. I was nine years old, so it also felt more adult, you yes. know, one of the one of my earliest associations with Lord of the Rings was a embrace of Lord of the Rings and a rejection of Harry Potter, mm. which was like, oh, all the kids in school like Harry Potter because they're a bunch of babies. But I like Lord <laughs> of the Rings, you know. So how old were you when you read? for the first time um so the movie came out around christmas time 2001 right yeah yeah so i must have been nine at the time so probably around nine ten years old is when i read it yeah so we were basically exactly the same age when we read it for the first time um did you read it in spanish yes yeah do you recall the translation at all and it, like because now when you were saying you were reading a few chapters were you reading in english i was reading it in english and um, I don't remember the translation so well because it's been like, you know, since yes. that time that I haven't read it. I think it's fascinating. I mean, obviously Tolkien was like famously a linguist and one of the key sort of generative uh, thing, like one of the things that sort of produced Lord of the Rings was his love of language. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, I've always thought it was interesting. I always wanted to read Lord of the Rings in other languages. I thought that would be interesting. I was reading a little bit about uh, his like beliefs on sort of linguistic aesthetic, this idea that like language can convey beauty, um, which is something that I think is sort of uh, implicit in a lot of literature, obviously, because, and we all feel it certainly, but Tolkien just makes that implicit, like explicit, where you have characters in the books who are like, you know, for, or end in the movies when like they speak like the, the black tongue of Mordor and everyone's like, ah, oh, my ears, you know? Hmm. And that language is sort of inherently ugly and distasteful to hear. And then other languages like Elvish have this like innately beautiful quality to the words, even if you don't understand the meaning. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, I always thought as a kid, I really responded to that. You know, that's very interesting that this happened. Um, I took an acting class this last semester um, for my master's. And then our last um, exam, we had to present the monologue that we got to choose. 
and I chose something from uh, Calderon, like so Spanish, uh, kind of Baroque stuff from Life's a Dream, and I did the monologue in English, and then um, my professor asked me right after, because I had included a translation in my paper, and then she said, oh, you put it in your in your paper, why don't you do it again in Spanish? And I did, and I don't think anyone, most people in the class didn't, don't speak Spanish, but everyone was like, so much more beautiful in Spanish, you know? Like, I feel like I understand it now better than I did before. <laughs> and I agree, but obviously they're not getting the Spanish the same way that I was getting it, right? But they still, there's still something about it that, like, you can tell. Yes. Because language is more than text. There's some sort of phonological, like, sonic beauty that exists in certain languages. And you hear this in stereotypes as well, of course. You have people saying that, you know, German is a sort of guttural, uh, unattractive language, whereas something like Spanish is the sort of romantic flowing thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe that's uh, a little reductive, but I think generally speaking, yeah, like sound, I mean, we like music. So of course we find beauty in language. And I think Tolkien was like so taken with that idea. Um, I actually pulled a quote um, from uh, The Two Towers. Uh, Go ahead, please read it. Um, it's Aragorn is singing the like uh, a lament in, um, in the Rohir, like the Rohan language. And Legolas doesn't speak that language, but Legolas says uh, regarding Aragorn's sing singing, he says, that I guess is the language of the Rohirrim, for it is like to this land itself, rich and rolling in part, and else hard and stern as the mountains. But I cannot guess what it means, save that it is laden with the sadness of mortal man. And so there's this idea here that like the language itself, the sound of the language carries all this meaning. Uh, and I think that's so fascinating, more than the words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, yes, that's great. Did you pick up on any of that as a kid? Like, did it speak to you? Well, it certainly didn't for me that much. The one way it did speak to me as a kid, because not, not in any sort of intellectual sense, but one way it did, which was in the book, there's a lot of poetry and song um, separate from the prose. And I remember the first time I read the book, sometimes I would skim through the songs and the poems because I'm like, all right, like more, like less of this poetry bullshit. I want to get back to the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same here. <laughs> but... As of after I got a few times in and I was reading the books and I really knew them, I did start to dig into those poems and I would often read them to myself out loud when I was reading the book. Um, and in doing so, I found the meter and the general structure of Tolkien's poetry and song really beautiful. I remember trying to like come up with melodies for the songs wow. based on the descriptions in the books. And I think in that way, I found that language very beautiful, even though I often had no idea what the poems meant. Right. Let me tell you what I get out of it most of all now. And I also pulled a quote. This is from one of the early chapters. I think it might be the second chapter in Lord of the Rings. Mm. And it is um, Gandalf is talking to Frodo about the, the return of Sauron. He, Gandalf says, the rumors that you have heard are true. He has indeed arisen again and left his hold in Mirkwood and returned to his ancient fastness in the Dark Tower of Mordor. That name even you hobbits have heard of like a shadow on the borders of old stories. Always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. First of all, I think that's such a wonderful quote and I feel the same way every time I read it and see it in the movies and especially in your 
really moving reading just then. Uh, <laughs> I almost feel moved to tears. I think it's just such a beautiful quote. And I think it evokes one of the key themes of the Lord of the Rings um, that perhaps is in some ways very un-American, which is this sort of inevitable sense of decline. Mm. Like the world is just necessarily going to fall in some way. Um, and, you know, we all wish that times weren't like this, but uh, one thing that distinguishes the books from the movies is I recall the books are framed by, you know, this, this, there's like the red book as it's a real book written by real hobbits and Tolkien is in some sense just translating that book. And I think as a kid, I understood that this framing device, this idea that like these stories were real and out of antiquity implies that even if things end happily, they lead to the world we live in now, which means hobbits don't exist and elves don't exist and magic is gone from the world. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe it's, well, and, and this is rambling, but there's a famous Tolkien quote about how he dislikes allegory. Mm -hmm. And he says he much prefers history, true or feigned with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I don't know that he's specifically commenting on any specific moment in history so much as he's just saying like, the human experience, the experience of civilization is one of beauty in decline. Mm -hmm. And if the reader is saying, man, that's real, <laughs> then maybe that's just a larger point about humanity. Yeah, that's interesting because one of the things that I was definitely wondering about is reading this, I knowing when the book was written, I was just thinking, oh, like this is clearly an allegory for World War II, right? Like he has denied that it was an allegory and everything, but like, you're living through the time, you must have been feeling a certain way, right? And we know in his letters that he had a lot of thoughts about the war and about Hitler, etc. So that's happening then. Then I'm reading it now, looking at the state of the world right now and feeling that way. And then I consider the times in which the Lord of the Rings seems to have connected with people. In the 60s, you know, the whole Vietnam uh, movement really embraced the books and that's when the books really started to become very big bestsellers and then the movies come out in the 2000s almost coincidentally right before 9-11 or like they come out after 9-11 but they were all shot before right and so you have all these moments is it a coincidence is it just that it's always something dark happening in in this world yeah i think that i think it has to be right because as you just said the movies were shot before 9-11 how could they know that the world would in some ways like be captured in this story in that way. They could never have predicted that. And yet it happened exactly at that moment. And, and my father, you know, became a fan of Tolkien in the early seventies, just at the time when, you know, it was becoming overwhelmingly popular, as you said. And I think that like, not to, you know, herald Tolkien as this like timeless genius or anything. Uh, although certainly uh, warning to like listeners of this podcast, I will be a big Tolkien fan and probably apologist for some things we'll get into later, I guess. Um, but I do think there's like this universal quality there that any time has, you know, conflict and battles between good and evil and, you know, all, so many themes in the work feel timeless to me. And I think that like the, the, the sort of story as an elegy for the world, you know, the whole, the end of the book is just so uh, elegiac, uh, in the way that like, it's just mourning this world that is passing away and we get to catch this like final glimpse of it, but then it's just gone. And like, 
the whole end of the book is just like, and then this character died there and this character died there and like everything passes mm. and everything fades. Yes, this is great. I wanted to get into that. And I think it, it, it brings back together a couple of things that we've said before and some things that I wanted to say. Um, watching the movies, what moved me the most this time was realizing how much these are stories, which I kind of knew, but it like came back to me about people facing the darkest possible situation and still deciding to do the right thing, right? Yes. Which always speaks to me. But the quote that I was talking about, right, that it's all about like feeling like, oh shit, it, it's been like the die has been cast and now I have to live through this horrible time. Mm -hmm. And what am I going to do, right? And they tell you, you got to bring the ring over there. You might die. You probably won't come back, but it's the right thing to do. So you got to do it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, shit, okay, I got to do it. And I find that very moving, you know, the, the, the sacrifice. Yes. And in the movies, that sacrifice is rewarded in a very, I guess this is where we can get into what is American, what is British or not about it, in a very triumphant way by the end, right? There's still melancholy at the end when Frodo goes through the Grey Havens, across the sea, into the West, but n not compared to the books. Especially something that I think we got to get into now. I was going to have a section about the adaptation, but I think we might as well just talk about now about the scouring of the Shire. Yes. To me, when I read it, I, hmm, I can't remember, but I must have read the book, the, the last part of Return of the King, after seeing the movie, because I remember getting to the scouring of the Shire and being absolutely shocked, being like, what the fuck? Like, and they took this out of the movie and this is not in the movie. What is happening? <laughs> To people who might not know what this is, could you, do you want to explain a little bit what that is? Sure, yeah. Um, so the Scouring of the Shire is a sequence at the end of The Return of the King where after destroying the ring and after Aragorn taking the throne of Gondor, after everything we think is, you know, all well and good in the world, the hobbits return to the Shire only to discover that in their absence, Saruman, uh, who they thought was vanquished at the end of the Two Towers, has actually industrialized the Shire and in some ways enslaved or forced into servitude, many of the hobbits and the landscape, which was formerly, you know, pastoral and beautiful has now become desolate and, uh, you know, beset by industry um, and corruption and, you know, political conniving all suffuse this place that used to be this sort of innocent idyllic place. And they basically fight Saruman to like regain the Shire. Yes, yes, of course. But of course the... The implication there, though, is that even though if they reclaim the Shire, it's not going to be the same. Yes. Like, like you said, something has changed, and that is the thing that is not in the in the movies. And I guess because it might feel anticlimactic or or something, you know, after it all builds up to destroying the ring and then every the happy ending, but Tolkien chose to do something different. Yes. And that to me feels not particularly American. Yeah. Um. I would agree that the scouring of the Shire, first of all, feels like such a culmination of the theme that, you know, at the end of the day, the world is just in some sort of decline um, or that at least any society goes into decline eventually. Um, and in the face of something like industry, you know, yes, the ring was destroyed and Sauron was vanquished, but industry, the, like the concept of industry and its, its devastation on the natural world and on human society, that doesn't go away because we vanquished one symbol of it, one manifestation of it. And I thought that was as a child, and I read this before I saw the movie and was also shocked when we encountered the scouring of the Shire. I think it is perhaps the most poignant reminder that evil can't be thrown into a volcano. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
yeah, and as I grow older, I'm with you. The movie's uh, decision, the in the decision of the adaptation to leave that out for reasons I can understand, I think something is certainly lost and it becomes a much more Hollywood ending. It does feel somehow weirdly and disappointingly appropriate that the movies that came out at the time that they did didn't bring that part into it. You know, in the middle of the war on terror, of course, you yeah. take away the part that tells you you cannot put the genie back in the bottle. You cannot throw the ring into the volcano and solve everything. Yeah. And the book does it so gently too, because it's not like they're saying, and now Saruman is this new tyrant who rules over the Shire. It's like, no, they vanquish him pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But as you say, the genies can't be put in the back of the bottle. There's still corruption. There's still industry. There's still... And that's already in the, in the quote that, that I also thought was really pertinent to now when Gandalf, the one that I read, when Gandalf says that, you know, always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen that happen in so many ways. Um, I guess, you know, don't want to read too much into Tolkien's uh, personal life and backstory, but he lived through World War One. And then was writing this through World War II. I think that for Tolkien, he was in some sense like anti-human society, anti-government. He was he was pretty anarchic in his thinking. I think he saw that you know equality among people was not really something that could be administered by people. I know he was very unattracted to power and to those who sought it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I, I pulled a quote about his, uh, you know, he didn't like democracy. He thought that democracy doesn't lead to an increase in humility and power for individuals, but rather to demagoguery right. and pride. Um, and he said, and this is a quote, he said, you know, the result of democracy being that we get not universal smallness and humility, but universal greatness and pride till some orc gets hold of a ring of power. And then we get and are getting slavery. Interesting. I mean, he was definitely a very Catholic man. Yes. And the one other way that that comes across is uh, you were mentioning, you know, being moved by the theme of courage in the face of, you know, impossible evil. And it's not just courage in the face of impossible evil. It's also courage, which ennobles the little guy, literally. It's not the mightiest hero who has that courage. Mm -hmm. It's like the little hobbit who has no business going to war. Yeah. And I think in Tolkien's mind, it was those who, who were least attracted to power, least suited for it had in fact the power to overcome that evil. Mm -hmm. Always moved me as a kid, especially as like a short kid. <laughs> um, let's talk about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien in America though. Okay. My, my first question, I guess, is like, do wh why do we think that the books, well, I guess we weren't there in the 60s when the books really got popular, but let's talk about maybe about the movies. Like, you know, they had a huge impact. A lot of people have written, and I don't know how true this is, I've always challenged it that it's because of 9-11 that, that people were ready for a movie like that. That was so about heroes and, and good versus evil. Um, I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that? Sure. I mean, I don't necessarily believe that 9-11 was like necessary context for the success of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think they're excellent movies that do a lot of things very differently than other movies of their, their type in some ways that are pretty uniquely un-American. Um, I know you talked about this recently uh, in another podcast appearance about about Kate Blanchett, but the degree to which those movies display sort of an earnest human affection for their characters, the characters genuinely love each other uh, without, you know, fear or cynicism um, or the sort of ironic distance that I think characterizes a lot of American love in mm -hmm. movies. And um, sorry to interrupt, but especially at that time, coming out of the 90s, yes. one of the most, like, you know, Gen X disaffected eras. Yeah. 
Totally. So I think the like earnestness of that affection in the movies has nothing to do with 9-11. I mean, it has everything to do with the coming out of the 80s and the 90s where we're like, man, like fuck vulnerability and earnestness. So yeah, no, generally speaking, I don't think we needed 9-11. I think people always like a great inspiring moving epic is always going to succeed when it's done well, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Do you think they're fundamentally uh, conservative movies or, or books in a certain way? I mean, there's definitely elements there, right? What you're saying about in industry and uh, the pastoral shire. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, so I would definitely distinguish the movies and the books in some way. And I think a lot of critiques of the work often cite imagery from the adaptations rather than from the actual text. Um, because I do think a lot of those differences are important. Um, and I think there are like interesting race readings on the movies, especially mm -hmm. uh, that I would push back on in regards to the books. But um, I think there's a conservatism in the books that is very different from our contemporary understanding of conservatism in America, certainly. But there is a sense of, you know, the piety of nature and hum hum humility, uh, there's like a, it's a sort of like libertarian quality more than it is a conservative quality. Mm -hmm. Like the humble, quiet life alone on my land, tending to my garden, that's mm -hmm. a good life. And anyone who seeks power over someone else is, even in a democratic society, I think, Tolkien would view as corrupt in some way. Yeah, it's a kind of a Clint Eastwood type of conservatism. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I can get behind that because there's definitely an element of looking back. And, any, and almost every time you do that, well, not always, you can look back with like, I guess, deep cynicism, but like, that's not what's happening here, right? Yeah. It's also worth wondering and questioning if it is actually looking back, right? Like, because it's it's fantasy and it's like, Oh boy, I think I feel like I'm opening a whole other can of worms. But like, you know, mythology, I was going to say, it's it's fantasy, it's mythological, it's it's going back to something that never really existed. That being said, those kinds of looks back at the mythical past have also been corrupted throughout history, right? Like the Nazis and, you know, their embrace of Wagner and, and Nordic mythology also led to a whole of horrible things around the time that Tolkien was doing something similar for Anglo-Saxon and Celtic um, histories, right? Yeah, it is interesting. Although again, I, I would, and the movie I don't think does this as successfully, but the books, I've always thought it's a bit reductive to look at the books as this sort of specifically like Anglo-Saxon or English narrative when half the characters in the fellowship all speak different languages and come from different cultures. And there's like this sort of inherent embrace to multiculturalism in the books that sort of goes unnoticed because they're elves and dwarves and men rather than like mm -hmm. Spaniards and the French and the English or whatever. Uh, but I do think that Tolkien, you know, was not a nationalist certainly, um, or at least not in a sort of, uh, you know, he definitely disavowed conquest and empire as mm. concepts. Um, but I think the movies struggle in that regard. And certainly I know he was famously anti-Nazi and you know, around the time during World War II when the books were uh, going to be published in German. He was asked if he was an Aryan um, and he wrote a very scathing letter saying, you know, I don't know if you are actually asking if I'm, if I'm like Indo-Iranian, but if you're asking if I have any Jewish ancestry, then no, I, you know, cannot unfortunately claim to uh, have any ancestry with that great people or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think Tolkien always 
was frustrated with anyone who who tried to ascribe a sort of like majesty to the sort of whiteness of of the books. Yeah, and that's actually what I wanted to get into next was the big racial question of Lord of the Rings, right? And and Tolkien in general, yeah. which is the thing that is brought up most often. I feel as a critique of the of the book and his work. I, f- I feel like I agree with everything you said. Some of those were facts, so you know can't disagree with that and some of the, and and the readings about the multicultural kind of fellowship right and and alliance between all these races yeah um i guess the quite next questions are like he has a very deterministic yes. way of the, the differentiating them and also there are the evil races right like there's the orcs who are inherently evil and then there are humans but then there are questions especially in the movies of like the way those humans who side with the orcs are depicted. Yeah, I would definitely say that I think the movies have a really clear issue here um, in their depiction of orcs, their depiction of Urukai, their depiction of the men from the south. Um, there's like clear stereotyping and racial coding that is like not given much nuance um, and is very difficult to read as anything other than allegorical um, for like racist stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the books have this problem a little less. There's actually a quote I pulled um, where Sam uh, uncovers, you know, there's a, when they encounter the Oliphants and there's a dead uh, man from the South, Sam, you know, uncovers his helmet and, and the line reads, Sam was glad that he could not see the dead face. He wondered what the man's name was and where he came from. And if he was really evil of heart or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home. Mm-hmm. And I think in the book, there's an understanding that there is no such thing as like innate evil, that no men are evil. Um, I'll get to orcs in a second though. <laughs> um, certainly among the men though. And I think one of my, uh, one of the most unfortunate things about the movie is that it does paint these like men as just very specifically like bad. And yeah, and, and like coded as definitely from the East or like the Orient as some people would say. Yes, 100%. Something that I remember that even as a kid, um struck with me about that depiction is like them saying talking about the return of the king and the design of the eastern and southern man that they were covering they were deciding to cover as much of their face as possible so that we wouldn't feel bad when the heroes killed them mm. which was interesting um definitely something that i heard all those years ago and and i still remember as a, as a choice that has lingered with me that's very fascinating and it makes, as I grow older, it makes that final, you know, those larger battle sequences in Return of the King a little more difficult to watch mm-hmm. um, because there is no clear motivation in the movies for why these people deserve to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that does sort of bring us to the orcs. Do you, what's your take on the orcs? So, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard because um, the orcs supposedly in the mythology are like elves that have been corrupted. I don't know exactly how it happened but like do you know more about that i'm not an expert um as i understand it there's not actually a sense of clarity on that i think in some of tolkien's writing elves are corrupted sorry orcs are corrupted elves and then in other writing orcs sort of came to be uh, as their own kind um and i don't know if there's like a ton of clarity and i'm sure some Tolkien expert who listens to this is gonna say what am i talking about but certainly the corrupted elves narrative seems to like imply some sort of racial purity and uh you know an interesting reading at the same time i think if we conclude that the movie sorry that the text is not allegorical 
and that the orcs are not meant to represent a specific people, but instead are meant to represent some sort of idea. Um, well, then you have to just conclude that like orcs represent people who've been consumed by wickedness, by you know their greed and material desires, and you know all the things that Tolkien seems to imply are bad, um, and they've followed mm-hmm. some sort of demagogue. Um, and uh, there was actually a letter that Tolkien wrote to his son, Christopher, um, where he said, uh, in real life, the orcs are on both sides, of course. In real life, men are on both sides, which means a motley alliance of orcs, beasts, demons, plain, naturally honest men and angels. And I think in that sense, all of the creatures of Middle Earth are reflections on humanity. Right. And, and yeah, I like that reading, actually, that you just gave of um, the orcs. Yeah, feels almost like a cautionary tale in its uh, in their depiction, right? Or like this is what a, a society that only cares about these things feels like. And they also, although what disturbs me a little bit is that they also feel very much enslaved by yes. Sauron and and their and their own desires, which mm-hmm. maybe it's part of it, you know, like their own view of the world. Yeah, I remember reading uh, that George R. R. Martin um, of Game of Thrones: A Song of Ice and Fire fame. Uh, you know, talked about how he obviously grew up loving Tolkien and Tolkien is an enormous inspiration for his work. Um, But one of the things he set out to do with his books that he felt Tolkien never did was really interrogate the politics of his world. And he said, you know, when he was reading The Lord of the Rings, he always found himself asking like, well, was there some sort of orc refugee program after the war? Uh, What was Aragorn's tax policy? You know, how did did any of this play out? Um, Was Aragorn, you know, Tolkien does have this sort of very religious idea that like a good person makes a good ruler in some sense. Um, And of course, history doesn't bear that out as true Mm. at all. Um, So yeah, I think the the degree to which orcs are enslaved is really interesting because the movies are, sorry, the books do seem to say that like these creatures are also victims of a cruel master, but then it's sort of, there is no thought to where the orcs go after the the story. (laughs) Lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him, Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. So one theme that I think is very present in the books and then also very faithfully represented in the movies is this idea of the ring as embodying it and creating an addiction to power. Um, And I think that feels uniquely un-American in some way. I think that uh, power is often, uh, you know, fetishized in American culture. And if you look at certainly like the superhero genre where the individual's power is celebrated as, as uniquely American, as well as like sort of a confirmation of their ability to exert their will over the other. Um, I think Tolkien and Peter Jackson both view the ring as this sort of metaphor for like power and for sin itself, for like the corruption of power itself um, and Frodo's addiction to it and, and Gollum's addiction to it. And in some ways, Saruman's addiction to it uh, are all really well realized. What, do you, what are your thoughts on 
on that theme. Definitely something that I mentioned in that other podcast that you were talking about where I went to talk about Kate Blanchett as Galadriel. This is the Sunday with Kate podcast, by the way. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts, listen to my episode. It was really great. Murtada um, was a great host. Um, but yes, as a kid, I was, and even to this day, I'm really fascinated by the idea of having this kind of MacGuffin in the story. It's always, almost always, about getting the artifact, right? Indiana Jones, like all this other stuff. There's always like the crystal or whatever that you need to find it and it's going to save you. And it's and this is the complete opposite. It's about destroying something. And that, I think, is also very Catholic. Yes. And very un-American. I mean, this is not a treasure hunting movie. It's a treasure destroying movie. That's such a great point. So we're going to start wrapping up on Lord of the Rings in a second. But before we do that, I have two words for you. And I want you to tell me free association, whatever you have to say about this topic. Tom Bombadil. Love the guy. Uh, Tom Bombadil. I mean, how, how much should I say? <laughs> as much as you want. So... Famously, he's not in the movies. He was cut from the movies, but he is in the first book. Tom Bombadil is a great character. He says a lot of silly poems, um, and he saves Frodo and Sam uh, and Merry and Pippin from some uh, nasty trees that are going to swallow them. And Tom Bombadil, uniquely, is the only character in the whole series who isn't affected by the ring. Um, he's able to like put it on, and it doesn't turn him invisible. It doesn't appear to do anything. And he doesn't appear that interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember as a kid, that was so magical to me. I remember you were telling me about like your sort of inability to read Galadriel as a kid. I felt the same way about Tom Bombadil. I'm like, this guy puts on the ring and doesn't do anything. What does it mean? And <laughs> he's so silly. And like, it almost feels like a, a detour more into the world of The Hobbit, which has this sort of goofy quality throughout. Um, so I don't know. I, I always loved the the tonal the shifts in tone in Lord of the Rings how it could get really silly all of a sudden and Tom Bombadil and there was always something to me about the ability to confront this terrible evil with this sort of cavalier sense of fear and I think there's a deep truth in that yes 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 because Tom Bombadil also a character that I couldn't read as a kid that was fascinating and that looking on him back back on him now have a lot of questions about the guy what his deal is but I think it feels more and more clear to me as an adult that he is the absolute opposite of I don't want to say of Sauron but like he is like the ideal guy in Tolkien's view right yes Tolkien is like this is the guy what's the meme like you know like the guy that she tells you she's not cheating yes, yes, yes. with and it's fucking Tom Bombadil you know what exactly. I mean he's the coolest the raddest dude in the land and he just goes around saying silly poems and living his life with his beautiful wife in his cottage. And I also pulled the quote because I was trying to figure him out. So this is the, I think it's Frodo asking Goldberry, who is Tom Bombadil's wife, basically, what is the deal with this dude? She tells him, he is the master of wood, water, and hill. And then Frodo says, then all this strange land belongs to him? No, indeed, she answered. And her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden. She added in a low voice as if to herself. The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on hilltops under the light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom Bombadil is master. This dude fucking rocks! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, that's amazing. I mean, and that says it all, doesn't it? 
like he where does his mastery come from it comes from his refusal to exert will on his landscape like you get to be a master when you just chill like that's great yeah do you think that's what the hippies loved about this book definitely oh i'm sure that tom i mean actually now that you say that I, don't quote me on this but i actually do think there were like there was some strain of some drug that had Tom Bombadil associations. Maybe it was an LSD blotter sheet that had like Tom Bombadil artwork on it or something. Definitely there are associations with the hippie movement and Tom Bombadil. Detachment, right? Like kind of like just living in nature. Yeah. There's like a Yoda on Dagobah quality to him. Yeah. Although Yoda and Dagobah has kind of like lost his marvels a little bit, if you ask me. Well, Tom Bombadil's kind of nutty though. Is he? I guess so. I guess so. He's in another plane, man. That's what's happening. He's just high all the time. Yeah, he's... <laughs> He's just really high. Yeah, exactly. Also interesting that his his he gives them a lot of food to the hobbits. And as far as I could tell, his table is all vegetarian. Right. Actually, and I remember, I don't know if you recall this, but in the Council of Elrond in the book, they bring him up and uh, someone suggests, well, we could just go give the ring to him because it has no power over him and it would be safe there. And they say it would for a long time, but because it has no power over him, he would just get distracted and lose it. And... <laughs> Like, it wouldn't be a safe place because he wouldn't give a shit about the ring. This dude, this is the coolest dude in the, in the history of literature. Like, he is just the guy. He is the yeah. master, like like she says. He's the master. Gotta love Tom Bombadil. Um, so before we close, this is a show about, of course, foreign cultures mm -hmm. coming to America and corrupting us all. So, like, do we think Lord of the Rings was ultimately a force for good, for evil in America? And how did it influence us. I think the books are sort of unassailably a force for good um, in just the imagination that they've awoken in, in the American populace and certainly in the celebration of fantasy storytelling and mythological storytelling. Uh, you and I are an age where you know, I got to grow up in a world where fantasy and science fiction and all these more kind of classically marginalized literatures were embraced as pretty legit. Um, but that's in large part because of the Lord of the Rings. I know that our parents' generation, like when my dad was growing up and he was reading these books, like they were definitely like much dorkier and it was not as cool. And, you know, obviously now we've kind of, we're kind of in the dark times of like nerd culture dominating mm -hmm. the mainstream. But I do think growing up in a world where the Lord of the Rings was just readily accessible. Um, and as I said, it, it sort of raised me in a way. I learned so many beautiful values. And when I did for a time, read it every year, I, I turned to it because it moved me. I would cry every time I finished the books. Um, so yes, for me at least, a force for good. What about you? It's interesting um, because I feel like so much in recent history, it seems to have been um, in its own way, not unlike the Shire, kind of perverted and taken and you know appropriated in certain ways. Um, a lot of them good, I think, who are we to say good and evil, you know? I feel like I'm becoming a real Tom Bombadil in my old age. Um, but no, but uh, kidding aside, I feel like a lot of them is very great. Like you're saying creativity and there's definitely a lot of poetry and a lot to find in the books, especially. And the movies, I think, are really great. The Lord of the Rings movies. But then you look at something like The Hobbit, right? The commercial success yeah. of the movies. Um, being... Uh, turned into something that is so it's such a strange artifact those movies i feel like they're like i don't see 
the soul in them. I don't see, you know, I see them as commercial enterprises first and foremost. They're kind of messy. There's some great action sequences, some visual effects, but it just feels very mercenary in a way that it's, I feel like it's completely antithetical to what Tolkien believed, right? And similarly with the way that the fantasy has um, become such a big part of, of our culture. I don't know. I agree. And, you know, um, there's a YouTube series by Lindsay Ellis, uh, a great video essayist um, about the Hobbit trilogy and kind of some of the behind the scenes motivations for what happened there. Um, and certainly it does seem with history's perspective that Peter Jackson was driven a lot less by a desire to make those movies and more by a desire to save the New Zealand film industry in some mm. sense. Um, but, and certainly I, I've watched the behind the scenes videos for the Hobbit trilogy and they're very dark and depressing in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. Yeah. You just can see on everyone's faces that they just don't know what they're doing and why they're doing it. Oh, um, interesting. So yeah, I think it is a much more commercial endeavor, but I also think that's movie making in a nutshell. I mean, at the end of the day, Tolkien took like 10 years to write the Lord of the Rings while he was working as a linguistics professor and, you know, doing other work to make a living, like translating Beowulf or whatever. And the Lord of the Rings was this work created by a singular author in isolation. And that's just a very different art form than movie making. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know that it's possible. I mean, the Lord of the Rings movies are sort of a miracle in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't know that that can happen again um, in any real sense, although I'd much, you know, I'd love it to. Yeah. So yeah. And I guess hearing the, hearing you say that, I now I'm like, oh, maybe the movies did corrupt America <laughs> in a way. <laughs> um, that's something that we can definitely, I could definitely talk about for a long time, um, but maybe on another podcast. Sure. Um, but I do have a lot of thoughts about not just the Lord of the Rings movies, but blockbuster movies of that era and of that time. Oh, yeah. Me too. Um, so maybe someday you'll come back on the pod and we'll have a discussion about Lord of the Rings the prequels, yeah. uh, The Matrix, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean, and Sam Raimi Spider Man movies. Yeah. Lots to talk about there. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being on the show, AB. It's always delightful to talk with you. Conrado, thank you so much for having me. Uh, what a gift to talk about Tolkien. Uh, I might go reread Lord of the Rings now. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all.